Hey listeners, my name is Meg and I'm a volunteer here at Saltbox Church. I want to welcome you to our podcast. I love that the teaching here isn't about flashy gimmicks or hidden agendas. It's all about diving deep into thought-provoking, Jesus-centered discussions. We're glad you're here and we'd love to get to know you better. So please don't hesitate to reach out with your prayer requests, questions, and comments at our website, saltboxchurch.com. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, we are in, this, in the book of Acts. We're in a, what I think is a great series in Acts. I'm learning a lot and growing. Um, but we are going to pause our look at Acts um, in order to do kind of a one-off on fasting. Everybody went, oh, great. <laughs> so we are starting a church-wide call to fast. But I would say to you it's a challenge by choice. In other words, if you choose to be challenged, great, come and join us. If not, that is also great. But I want to unpack sort of biblically and theologically this idea of fasting, and then we'll make a little shift um, at the end. In fact, I'm going to share um, a couple vulnerable things from my own life, how fasting has been very powerful for me. We'll look at two different uh, texts. We're going to talk um, about the focus of fasting biblically, what fasting reveals reveals, um, what fasting even achieves in our own Jesus journey. Uh, we're going to take a quick look at the types of fasting, and then we'll conclude with some personal sort of applications um, for you. Sound good? All right, here we go. Um, I am in Matthew 6, and then I am also going to turn to Luke 18. Look at that. Both of those are up there. If you're on your phone, you can open that up, scroll away. If you've got a paper Bible, that is great. Um, Last thing I need to do before I start this, we are launching our small groups uh, this week. And you might be like me, um, Abby and I have had some great small group experiences, and guess what? We've left a couple small groups. <laughs> um, and, and if you are a person who would go, man, I have been wounded or disappointed or hurt or frustrated by small groups, I would encourage you um, to risk again. And to try again. If you go to saltboxchurch.com slash groups, there's 28 groups on there, and you can get registered and get connected on, with groups right on our website, saltboxchurch.com slash groups. Uh, and those, you can contact leaders, know where they're meeting, what they're about. Um, but we are, really believe that discipleship happens in your own Jesus journey with life on life. Right? It's life on life, together, walking out um, your own faith with Jesus that is what produces disciples of Christ. So I'd encourage you to get in a group. Come on, I heard you, PD. That's Pastor Daniel over there. Okay, uh, Matthew 6, verses 6 through 18. I'm going to share some about my story, and then we'll go to Luke 18. All right, so Matthew 6, we are picking this up. This is King Jesus speaking. He is, on, uh, he is at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he is at a place called geographically Aramis Heights, a different story, but that's where Saltbox got its name. Um, and this is the greatest sermon ever preached. He's in a huge natural stone amphitheater. He's probably preaching to, a, to, to multiple, multiple thousands of people. Um, and let's see what he says in Matthew 6, verse 16 about fasting. Are you ready? It says, when you fast, when you fast. Okay, now hang on a second. Jesus in Matthew 6, 16 says, when you fast. Does it say, if you fast? It says what? When you fast. So Jesus, hang on, fully God, fully man, preaching the greatest sermon ever preached, makes the assumption that we as New Testament believers are going to what? I mean, circle it, write it down, make a note. 
This is uh, fasting is one of the great lost disciplines um, in this Jesus journey, I assure you. And, and what is amazing to me is right out of the gate, he goes, when you fast. He, makes, he just assumes that every one of us who are in Christ are going to. That's a little humbling, i got to say. It's humbling, and that's okay. Join me in a place of humility. And let's keep reading. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. That's like big words. Abby and I, that's my wife, Abby, we were talking this past week, and uh, she shared, we were sharing about a number of different things, but she shared about a couple things from when we were dating and when we were married early on in our marriage. And I had this moment where I went, oh my goodness, I am a hypocrite. There's, there's some hypocrisy in me. And as she was sharing, I was like, I'd never seen it from her perspective. And I was like, we've been married like almost 13 years. And it was a moment where I went, oh my goodness. All right, back to this. Jesus says, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So what's their reward? It's being seen is what he's saying. So they walk around, oh, woe is me, I'm fasting. Will everybody look at me and check on me and pat me on the shoulder and encourage me and love on me? You know, we just need some more encouragement. No, no, he says, no, 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 don't disfigure your faces to show others you're fasting. If you do that, you've received your reward in full. 17, but when you fast. Okay, so again, he says, says, when you fast. Does he say if? I mean, y'all got to get this. This is big and solid, and the American church in a lot of ways has lost this one. I mean, there, you cannot make us, you can't, Jesus didn't command us to fast, but he clearly is saying that when you fast. In other words, he assumes the church is going to be fasting. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. I'm sure none of you put olive oil on your head today. If I did, I'd had a really shiny head. Put your lotion on, take your shower. That's what that means. Like, be good to yourself. Put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting. Okay, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I mean, Jesus is preaching this wild sermon, and he just pauses and does this little, like, one-off, two-verse mini-sermonette on fasting, and boom, it's just in there. But right from the get, the, the get gate, right from the gate, Jesus is emphasizing what here? Uh, okay, let me, let me juxtapose this. Uh, in, in my mind, you can either emphasize the external, or you can emphasize the Internal. So right out of the gate, Jesus is making, number one, the assumption that we as New Testament believers will fast. Number two, he is saying, if you're going to fast, when you fast, make sure that you're focused on the internal. And if you make the mistake of focusing on the external, you've got your reward in full and you may as well go home because it's all over. Okay. Um, flip with me to Luke 18. Here's what I'm going to do in Luke 18. Um, it's really cool because Luke 18 was written by a Gentile. Uh, probably the only Gentile that wrote Scripture. Um, and He wrote uh, Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. 
But I'm going to start in verse 9, because it's going to set the stage beautifully. And then I'm going to tell you some of my story, and then we're going to go back and finish the text. Okay? All right, quick reminder. As we're going into this, Jesus, number one, assumes that we're fasting. And then number two, he says, if you're going to fast, you're going to focus on the internal. Okay. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. That's worth circling if you have a paper Bible. Confident of their own righteousness. And a warning to the wise. If you become confident of your own righteousness, you're probably on thin ice. Okay. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So, two signs that you're acting Pharisaic. Number one, you are looking down on everybody else. Number two, you've become confident in your own righteousness. Okay, now, let's open this up. I'm going to share about me, and then we're going to dig back in to Luke 18. Um, some of you uh, have heard some of my story. I, I do my best to be authentic and, and vulnerable um, when I am up here. I believe that is the key to unlocking the kingdom and to accessing the finished work of King Jesus in our heart and in our lives. But um, I, I spent uh, seven years um, in a cult, and, I, and it was determined that in a court of law. It's not like a lightweight word I'm throwing out. I don't mean that as a cliche, a legitimate um, thing, and it, it has cost me everything. Um, and, and Abby, as my spouse, has like journeyed with me through layer upon layer upon layer of shame and healing and forgiveness, and, um, and, and we're still dealing with many things related to it. But I was still in um, this group, and the Holy Spirit of God began to convict me um, out of Galatians 5.22 about the fruit of the Spirit. And I came to this recognition that not only did I not have any of the fruit of the Spirit, I had a lot of the fruit of the flesh. If you want to read Galatians 5.22 and 23. And um, I uh, got uh, permission, if you will, um, to fast. I'm still in the cult. But I got permission to fast, and in my heart, I am saying, Lord Jesus, would you deliver me? And I don't even know what I need to be delivered from. But I began to say, Lord, would you deliver me? And at that point, I had hair. I realized that is really hard for some of you to imagine. And I had a beard, and that's probably hard for you to imagine too. But, and, and I'm not suggesting this is part of fasting. Please don't apply that. I'm just saying this is what Michael Mattis did in my context. But as part of that, I also got permission to shave my head um, and shave my beard. And they apparently thought it was great. Um, but in my heart, I was like Old Testament, shaved head, shaved beard, liquid fasting. Father, would you save me? Because I recognize that I am no longer full of any of the fruit of the Spirit. And not only am I not full of the fruit of the Spirit, I'm full of the fruit of the flesh. And Father, I recognize that I am bankrupt and I am void and I don't even know what's happened to me. And I've lost myself and I've lost my life and I've lost my sense of you and I can't find me and everything is dark. And if any of you who are scuba divers in the room, you can actually get a form of nitrogen narcosis where down becomes up in your brain and up becomes down and people end up swimming down to their death and for me I was so mixed about that I couldn't figure out which way was up and what was light and what was dark and I just began to cry out father would you save me and it wasn't but several weeks and then a couple of months later that I was officially and formally ejected from this group okay Fast forward now a number of months. I'm not going to go into the details. Um, and and I, I 
I'll just tell you kind of what happened. The first year out, uh, what was so painful for me, like so painful, like, like I can't even, um, it's like I, I can't even fully articulate this, but what was so painful is I no longer trusted me. Um, and I no longer trusted God. Because we had proof texted things like crazy and used the Bible and it was like goofy craziness. I'd done all sorts of things, embarrassing things, shameful things. But I no longer trusted me, I no longer trusted him, and I no longer trusted people. And so what happens is like inside, it's like I didn't know what to wear, I didn't know what I liked, I didn't know what food I liked, I didn't know what clothes I liked, I didn't know who I was, I didn't know how to put one foot in front of the other. And I realized that you guys sit out there and you see me up here and you go, yeah, right. But I can tell you in 2008, the beginning of 2008, I was so shattered and so broken, I couldn't figure out which way was up and which way was down and what was left and what was right and who I was. And I didn't trust anyone and I was scared to death. And if I told you the first thing I said to my psychologist, who I still meet with, by the way, and you would be absolutely shocked. I went in and I said, I just need you to tell me if I'm crazy. And there's a few expletives. And I said, please tell me. And if I am, just lock me up. But I began a journey that first year, and I had no idea. But what I essentially did is if you look up the 12 steps of recovery, or if you've got a CR, Celebrate Recovery background, the eight steps of recovery, I basically, and I had no idea until looking back, but I began to work the recovery steps. I'd work them through, and then I'd start over, and I'd work them through. And as part of what I did, um, I actually fasted. You could go ask my parents. I had to move back into my parents' house at 27, lived in the room over their garage. Everything was embarrassing. I had to go back to college because I dropped out. Like, I was starting over. I was so mortified. <laughs> but I fasted, and I actually did back-to-back uh, 40-day fasts. Now, before you get impressed, um, all I did was um, partial fasts, okay? So I'd make a 40-day run, and I would write down, um, I'm fasting for this, my identity in Christ, who I am, what I like. And I'd set a few, like, goals or things. I'm fasting for my two infant kids. I'm fasting for the people that I hurt, you know, whatever it was. And then I would give up something. I mean, I gave up even silly things. Like, I love peanut butter, and I gave up. Peanut butter. But every 40 days, I would just take something and I would set it out here and I would go, as an act of faith, I'm just going to give this up. I'm going to create a void in my life intentionally, asking that as I intentionally create a void in my heart, that that void would be filled with the kingdom and presence and power of God. Make sense? So I did, unbeknownst to really anybody, I just did back-to-back 40-day fast. I built a network of people around me. I went back to college. I started this little business, and I just began on the journey of recovery, and it was absolutely excruciating. And any of you who've been in a, um, in a, in a marriage or a job or had a friend or, or anything that is, like, toxic or doesn't have good boundaries or at least overreaches good, healthy boundaries, you know what I'm talking about. Like, recovery is devastatingly hard work, okay? And here's the other thing. Uh, fasting was, for me, in addition to prayer and worship and just reading my Bible and a five-year journal and a number of different things I began to do, fasting was like a tool in my tool belt, and it was one of the most powerful keys of the kingdom in my life and journey. Because I believe as I took a step of faith and asked God to meet me, I created a void, I gave something up, asked God to step in and fill it, he met me there, and he would begin to break through or unlock doors or um, sin patterns or care character deficiencies. He would unlock things in me and walk me on a journey of healing and restoration. 
It's really good news. Like, it is good, good news. And some of you in the room know, like, recovery, and you know how you um, recover from things like addictions, and you wouldn't go, I was addicted to anything really. But I also was because I was in a place where um, the mind was warped and distorted, and everyone thought the same way and acted the same way and talked the same way and did the same things, and you were punished if you didn't. Everybody breathe deep. Okay. What I began to see as I fasted was that I, this is really important, I was addicted to my own self-righteousness. And therefore, my pride would not allow me to fully receive his grace and forgiveness. And for me, part of breaking my self-righteousness, part of laying down my pride, part of learning to receive his grace and forgiveness was a year of back-to-back fasting which allowed me to drink deeply of his grace and deeply of his forgiveness. And guess what? I'm still exercising that muscle. Okay, now you're sitting here and you go, Michael, all that's fine and well. I don't have a crazy story like you, thank God. Um, But what does fasting have to do with me? Let me make a shift. Uh, Why would you fast? Um, For something that is a stubborn, lingering disappointment or even bitterness with God or people. You need to fast. If you've got a lingering disappointment, you may not even know it. Your spouse or a friend or someone you trust or somebody who's not a yes person in your life might be willing to even speak. You might ask somebody. And if you have a stubborn, lingering disappointment or bitterness with God or a person, you might want to fast. Um, Jesus actually said, I'm not going to turn here, but in Mark 9, 29 and in Matthew 17, 21, in the King James, not in the NIV, it's got to be King James, but Jesus actually says this type, meaning it was a demonic oppression, but this type of oppression doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. So you have King Jesus setting forth that there are certain things that because we are, are broken and we live in a fallen world that you and I cannot overcome except by prayer and fasting. Okay, so if you're in life and you have a major spiritual or life decision, you're at a crossroads, you might need to fast. Uh, if you have a child that is, is in a health crisis or a spiritual crisis or some other crisis, you might need to fast. If you've got a marriage issue that is super stubborn and it's not resolving, and really what that means is God needs to change you, but you're blaming them, you might need to fast. If you've got an unwanted habit pattern, a behavior pattern, an unwanted uh, attitude, you might need to fast and pray. If you've got a parent or a sibling or a child not walking with King Jesus, you may need to fast and pray. If you've recognized that you've lost your first love in King Jesus, you may need to fast. If you've got unresolved relational brokenness that cannot be repaired, humanly speaking, you may need to fast. Okay, let's go back to our text, Luke 18. I'm picking up, I'll go ahead and read verse 9 again. To some who were confident of their own righteousness... By the way, I find myself there again at times, just being honest with you. I think most of us who walk with Jesus for any length of time fall, inadvertently fall into being overly confident of our own righteousness. If you've never experienced that, you come hang out with me a little bit. I'll talk. I'll I'll help you experience that. 
to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, I find myself doing this too at times. Just being honest. Find myself looking down at people. And if I find myself yeah, yeah, and being too critical, I just do a little heart check. I have a meeting with myself and I go, Jesus, would you convict me? Would you help me? And would you forgive me? And I get up and keep walking. Okay, to some um, who are confident of their unrighteousness, look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to a temple to pray. Okay, all right, hold on a second. Jesus is sitting with a group of people who are what? Confident in themselves, confident in their own righteousness, and looking down on other people. So he's sitting with a group of people. And so based on the people Jesus is sitting with, he tells this parable. Okay, it's really important. Okay, uh, <clears throat> verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. So they're going to Jerusalem. One was a Pharisee, which literally Pharisee translates set apart one. Okay, the other, a tax collector. Um, this is really hard if you're not in this culture, but like a tax collector was authorized by Rome, so Israel was occupied by Rome, and a tax collector was, was authorized to stop any Jewish person almost anywhere at any time and demand taxes. And if Rome asked for like, let's just say, you know, one or two coins, the tax collector could ask for three or four coins. So tax collectors were considered, they were usually Jewish, but they were traitors to the Jewish people. So not not like like Jewish Jewish people hated Romans like right here, but they hated tax collectors like way up here, right? So this is a this is someone who is so hated, who steals from their own people, who's abandoned their sort of national heritage, um, who has sided with Rome and elevated themselves. Like they are fiercely fiercely hated. Like someone would just a, a Jewish person would just as, as soon shun, shame, spit on, reject um, a tax collector as as even say a nice word to them. Okay, back to this. Two men went up to a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Come on. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Now, Pharisee means separated one. So he's fulfilling his namesake, okay? Here's what he prayed. God, I should even read it in a Pharisee voice, shouldn't I? God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, this is really funny because uh, we have a men's um, breakfast uh, one Thursday a month. It's like, it's like the most unglamorous thing. We come together and have some coffee and eat some bacon and eggs. And I, I talk for three minutes and I ask a really hard question. And there's one ground rule. Who, who, who knows it? No preaching, just sharing. That's the only ground rule. So I ask a really hard question. And the ground rule is no preaching, just sharing. And when somebody takes to preaching, usually the group rises up and goes, you're preaching. And the person goes, okay, and goes back to sharing. Now, all of us have heard people pray in such a way that we recognize, oh, they're not praying to God. They're preaching to me. They think I should cut my hair or go to school or, you know, I mean, come on, you have heard a prayer with somebody, I'm sure, and they get into their prayer and all of a sudden you're like, gosh, they're preaching at me. They are not talking to God. Beware of such people. 
Now, verse 12, he says in his prayer, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, I want you to see something in Jewish um, custom, Jewish tradition. Um, fasting is on the same line item as, let me read it again and I'll ask the question. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Fasting is on the same light item as tithing. Now, this is not taught in church, I assure you. It's not, because we at church would much rather talk about tithing. We like it when people give. You know, in fact, one of the things we do around here is we don't even pass a plate. Church, you don't, you don't have to pay money to come to church and be a part of the club. We provide opportunity for people to give, but we're not going to pass something, because half the time the plate goes by and you're like, oh gosh, I should put something in it because, you know, I'm here, right? I, you, it's like compulsory giving. No, 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 no. Get rid of that. Give because you love Jesus. Fast because you love Jesus. Jesus. This is a lost discipline in the church, but it is powerful. And if you will get this church, listen to me, it is not cool. It is not fun. It doesn't go well on social media. It doesn't look good on Instagram. You're not going to get likes on Facebook, but you will begin to become acquainted with the person of King Jesus, and you will begin to experience transformation. And all of the good things that you want in this journey happen when you know him and are known by him and in knowing him and in him knowing you, you begin to know yourself and all of a sudden you begin to function and you make decisions out of a place of knowing who you are in Jesus. It is so powerful. This is like a tool in your tool belt. Pick it up today if you want it. If you don't, just leave it up here on the stage. Challenge by choice. Okay. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, the other thing that's really important here is the market, um, the Jewish market, would have probably been on Monday and Thursday. There's conflicting views on this, but let's just say the market would have been on Monday and Thursday, and Pharisees would have shown up at the, the market. And so on the day that they're fasting, now go back to our other text. Where was our other text? Matthew, right? Go back to that. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Who's he talking about? The Pharisees. And what days do they choose to fast? The market days. Now, why do they choose to fast on market days? To be seen. Okay, this is all, it all connects, right? Like, you, they could fast the other days, and they'd just be at the temple, and they'd be doing their thing, and they'd be pretty hidden. But I fast twice a week on the market days so that I can walk around, and I'm going to look a little droopy, and I'm going to do my thing so that everybody knows I'm fasting. Okay, so again, the emphasis is on the external and not on the internal. Okay. And Jesus is always, always, always on the, the moment, the moment you shift gears and begin to put any emphasis on the external, you lose the heart of the kingdom of God. Listen to me. Jesus will always deal with all of the external manifestations of the ugliness of your heart if you will give him your Okay, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. I love this. He would not even look up to heaven. Like, I relate to this. This is how I felt in 2008. Like, I, and I still have moments where I feel this way, but I felt like I wasn't, wor I, I wasn't worthy to live. 
He wouldn't even look up to heaven, and he beat his breast. And uh, culturally, uh, men would never beat their breasts in this day and age. It was a, it was a feminine thing to do. Um, females would, would beat their breasts. There's a number of reasons for that, but a man would never do that. So he is, um, this is a patriarchal society. I'm not making statements about men and women right now. Um, in fact, stick around for a couple weeks. We're about to talk about Priscilla when we get back to Acts, and that's going to be really good. Um, but regardless, in this day and age, only men, or only women, excuse me, would beat their breasts. So you have this... Um, uh, this tax collector who has come in, and both of these men um, would be attending prayer. So prayers usually at 9 and noon and 3 p.m. and then an evening prayer. So they're coming in, and most likely they're standing before a big um, altar of some sort, and there is a dead uh, lamb that has been slain on top of um, this altar, and blood would be dripping down, and one of the priests would have taken blood and splashed it on the side of the altar. And now Jesus became the... Lamb of God, fulfilling the Old Testament Passover that is being celebrated at this moment of prayer. So you have this Pharisee who walks in, and you have this tax collector who walks in. The Pharisee does this pompous, blah, 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 great am I, how wonderful am I. And Jesus is saying, hey, dude, you've received your reward in full. And then the tax collector comes in, and he's literally hitting himself, going, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm not even worthy to look up to heaven. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be Now, let me just say with great clarity, you are never more like Jesus than when you humble yourself. You are never more like the enemy than when you exalt yourself. Let me give it to you like this. Jesus, Philippians tells us, if you want to look that up, um, chose to forsake or let go of all of his kingliness. He took off his kingliness. He took off all of his God of the angel armies, creator of the universe, the one who stood outside of time, and he stepped into earth as this little helpless babe um, who, if his mom didn't feed him or change him, would have been left in his own mess. He stepped into a totally helpless form. He took off all of his majesty, and he became a servant. He humbled himself. And then at the end, uh, God actually exalted him. So when he was um, ascended back to heaven, that was the ultimate coronation or crowning, if you will, of King Jesus. Okay. So for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus is telling all these self-important, self-righteous, confident people who look down at everybody else that... that, uh, Who went home justified? The tax collector. So the guy who was in there, not looking up to heaven, beating his chest, standing at the very back of the room, not willing to go up near the front, went home justified. That's like this big theological word that means he went home free of sin. And he's also saying in that that the Pharisee went home full of sin. Now, pause for just a second. Jesus is telling this story in a room full of Pharisees. So he is saying, with great clarity, the precision of like a bullseye archer to this group of people. You are full of sin. You are self-important. 
You're full of yourself. You're overcoming. You look down on other people. You are despicable. You don't even pray to God. Your prayers are preaching to people. I mean, he, like with, with like surgeon precision, goes in. And this is why the Pharisees hated him and ultimately killed him. Like, this is it. Because Jesus had such laser precision when he dealt with them. Okay, there's so much to say here, but I'm going to move on. I'm going to open up this idea of fasting. And, and it's really funny that I would even choose this text because it's very important as we head into a season of fasting or invite you into a season of fasting, can you be justified by fasting? What did it just say? The Pharisee fasted, and who went home justified before God? The tax collector. So let me ask the question again. Can you be justified by fasting? No. Everybody say it. One, two, three. No, you cannot. You are justified by having repentance and humility in your heart, by humbling yourself before God, by calling your sin, sin, whether it's big egregious external sin or big egregious internal sin. There's people who are lost out in bars and there's people who are lost in church pews. I guarantee you, you can be lost in both places and neither is more evil. It's all sin. Welcome to the Equal Opportunity Offense Church, where I will offend you with the gospel. Okay, now let's step back here for just a second and see if I can kind of begin to get my arms around all this. Um, in my opinion, fasting has declined in the church over the last hundred years for at least three reasons. Somebody smarter would have more, but I've got three. Number one, fasting got a bad reputation in the Middle Ages. People engaged in all this like self-punishment for the sake of making themselves righteous or justified. I mean, they even to the extreme of like beating themselves with things. And so fasting was used during that season, and it got a bad name, a bad rap. And so Christians stopped fasting. Um, and, and if you looked a little bit deeper, the inward reality of a relationship with Christ declined in the Middle Ages. And wherever an outward form, if you will, of religion um, takes hold, things like cathedrals, religious activity takes hold, there's a decline in true spiritual inward renewal. Uh, the religious law takes over and with it a pious religious sense of like security and manipulative power. So people saw the Pharisee type people in the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages fasting and so so they said, we're not going to fast. So fasting declined. All right, second reason. Uh, coming out of the Enlightenment, uh, self-actualization was preeminent. Um, and guess what? Fasting plays very little role in most of our minds in terms of self-actualization. And again, it declined. Thirdly, I don't mean to be offensive here, but the American um, consumer mentality convinces us that if we don't have three large meals a day along with a lot of snacks in between, we're probably going to starve. So those are the three reasons, that, at least three, that fasting um, has declined. Now, uh, until recently, and now we have this huge resurgence of something they call intermittent fasting. And we largely do that for external beautification. I'm sure, no doubt it started in Hollywood for people to get their figure back before they got on camera. That's my theory anyway. I don't know. But intermittent fasting, and there's no real spiritual emphasis there. It's all on the external. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, biblically, some people who fasted. These are just a few, but it is all over the Bible. You start doing a search, it is all over the Bible. Uh, Moses fasted. King David fasted. Elijah fasted. Queen Esther fasted. 
Uh, Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, fasted. Anna, the New Testament prophetess, fasted. Paul the Apostle fasted. King Jesus fasted. Historically, there are a number of uh, Christians who fasted. Martin Luther in the 1500s, avid faster. John Calvin, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Charles uh, uh, Finney, Charles Spurgeon, the nun Agaria who pioneered a lot of the archaeological work in the Holy Land. All of them were regular fasters. In fact, Charles Spurgeon uh, once said, I love this quote, here's what he said, Our seasons of fasting, he's from the UK, by the way. He's no longer alive. I like all the dead people. They're with Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is the name of their church. So it's like him saying like salt box. But our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider and never have our hearts been nearer to the central glory of God. That's my prayer for this season of fasting. Okay, Uh, the focus of fasting. If you look at Luke 2.37, I'm not going to turn there. You can make a note if you'd like. But the prophetess Anna is cited to be always at the temple waiting for the appearance of the Messiah. And she was worshiping and fasting. So biblically, you get this idea that worshiping, fasting, and prayer all kind of go hand in hand and are inseparable. In Acts 13, 2, we could turn there, we preached it a number of weeks ago, but the church in Antioch was praying, worshiping, and fasting, and it says the Holy Spirit showed up, spoke to them, and they laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them out, sending Christianity to Europe, because they were prayer, praying, worshiping, and fasting. Okay, so the focus of fasting. If I took you to the Old Testament, Zechariah 7, 5, God questioned the people in Zechariah's day, and here's what he said. Look it up, Zechariah 7, 5. When you fasted and mourned, was it really for me that you fasted? In other words, he's questioning again the motive of the human heart. So fasting must always Um, emphasize a God-centered, God-initiated, God-ordained position in our lives. John Wesley, one of the church fathers, declared, First, let fasting be done unto the Lord with our eyes singly fixed on him. Let our intention herein be this and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. That is the only way we will be saved from from loving the blessing more than the blesser. This is so good. That is the only way we will be saved from loving the blessing more than the blesser. Listen, church, I'm guilty of this, and I think a lot of the American church right at this moment is in the doldrums because we're guilty of loving the blessing more than the blesser. If that fits, just wear it and go, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me for loving the blessing more than you? Here's what fasting reveals, and I would say... And a number of theologians would agree with me that more than any other single discipline, fasting reveals what truly controls you. Do a liquid fast for a couple of days. It'll reveal it. Now, if you're like me and you're in a recovery journey like I was in 2008 and in some ways still am, fasting becomes vital to understanding who God is, beginning to know who you are, and walking from where you are to where he is, that sanctification Jesus journey. 
David, King David says in Psalm 69.10, I humbled my soul with fasting. If you've got anger inside of you, bitterness, strife, jealousy, fear, covetousness, all of those things will begin to surface with fasting. And at first, we rationalize it all and says, oh, it's just because we're hungry. But then as you journey, you begin to see that God is convicting you and revealing something. And anytime God convicts you, listen to me, church, this is so good. You have an opportunity to repent. And if you're an old school Christian, that's like a bad word. But I'm telling you, repentance is activating the finished work of the cross of Christ in your life. And it is the best news ever. It is awesome. You trade your brokenness like a jacket for the life of Christ, putting on his righteousness and his wholeness. It's amazing. Okay, what does fasting achieve in our Jesus journey? Fasting helps keep Christ as the center point of our lives. If you're like me, I allow consistently, even now, I can't even believe it some days, I'm 43 years old, but I allow non-essentials to take the precedent over King Jesus in my life and how quickly um, I crave or go after the things that God hasn't called me to or I don't need, and it's easy even to become enslaved by them. So fasting helps even put to death your human cravings, if you will, and desires um, and allow the kingdom of God to rise up within you. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul actually says, I pummel my body like an, like an athlete and I subdue it. David wrote, Psalms 35.13, I afflicted myself with fasting. This is discipline and discipline brings freedom and freedom ushers in the kingdom of God. Okay, let's talk quickly about fasting, and then I'll give you five kind of concluding thoughts that I think will be applicable to your life. Um, I'm going to go through this quickly. You don't need to turn there, but Daniel 1, verse 12, that's an Old Testament prophet book, but um, that gives us um, the Daniel fast, where you eat only vegetables. So you're not, he, he gives up wine, he gives up meat, he gives up sweet delicacies, and he just eats vegetables. That's a Daniel fast. Some of you might want to try that for a week during the Lent season. Give it a whirl. Pray about it. Uh, Daniel 10.3 gives us the partial fast. Daniel writes there that I ate no rich food and no wine. So likely he gave up probably some kind of like dessert type things, wine and perhaps meat. Esther 4.16, Esther institutes, Queen Esther in the Old Testament institutes an absolute fast. This is wild. She calls the entire nation of Israel, they're about to be uh, killed, all of the Jews, um, but she institutes an absolute fast for three days. This is super dangerous. Don't become religious and weird on me, okay? I mean, really. But she institutes an absolute fast where the Jews don't eat and don't drink, and they fast for three days, and at the end of three days, they break it and go back to eating and drinking. Acts 9, verse 9, the Apostle Paul institutes an absolute fast after his encounter with Christ Jesus on the Emmaus Road. Three days, no food, no water. Deuteronomy 9, 9, Moses practices a supernatural absolute fast for 40 days. Supernatural, don't try it, you and I won't live. <clears throat> 1 Kings 19, 8, Elijah practices a supernatural absolute fast for 40 days. No food, no water. In Leviticus 23, 27, there's an annual public fast that all of the Jews practice together. In fact, by the time of Zechariah the prophet, there were four annual uh, fasts that all the people did together. Now, hear me on something, and then I'm gonna give you these five concluding thoughts. Freedom in the Bible, freedom in Jesus is not license. Freedom in the Bible is opportunity. It's really important. 
Biblically, freedom is not licensed. So immature Christians take their freedom. I mean, you're so free in Christ, you wouldn't believe it. But immature Christians take their freedom and they use it as license. We've all done it. But freedom biblically is not license, it's opportunity. So I am inviting you to the opportunity of fasting for the next 46 days. Don't go crazy. If you've never fasted before, don't go, I'm going to do a Daniel fast. I'm going to do a liquid. No, 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 no. Give up sweet tea. Like really, just give up something small and watch the Holy Spirit of God meet you in the small thing that you've given up. But do something. Take a step. So you're free today to choose not to fast. And let me assure you, God will not be more pleased with you if you fast. Hear me say that. God will not be any more pleased with you if you fast. It's really important. Okay, five concluding thoughts, and we'll close with a worship song. Number one, you do not change to fast God's perspective of you. You fast to change your perspective of God. He already loves you completely. He died for you. He can't love you any more than he already does. You are not fasting to change God's perspective of you. You're fasting to change your perspective of God. Number two, you don't fast to get God to speak to you, to like manipulate him or make him speak to you. You fast to minimize your own human distractions, to increase your own keenness in your heart, to listen and to respond to the still small voice of the ever-present eternal God who has been speaking to you, who is speaking to you, and will continue to speak to you in his word, in all of creation, and in the still small voice in the moment-by-moment sense in your life. You don't fast to get God to speak to you. You fast to get rid of your distractions so you can... Listen and hear and respond. Number three, you fast to dethrone your sinful self. Paul would call it sarx in Greek, S-A-R-X. Jesus would call it autos in Greek, A-U-T-O-S. They mean the same thing. But you fast to dethrone your sinful self and empower the work of the Holy Spirit of God in you and through you. Number four, you fast to open doors of freedom from spiritual strongholds, to give clarity where there is confusion, to seek direction, to more fully abide in him, and to more completely grasp the reality of the unseen kingdom of God. Fasting changed my life, and it continues to. Lastly, number five, we fast to see and to acknowledge what controls us, and to gain freedom from it to more fully root ourselves in King Jesus. If you've ever looked at our mission statement here at Saltbox, it's to lead people to become fully surrendered disciples of Christ. Fasting is just a tool, it's like a key, it's like a hammer. Fasting is just a tool that you can use in your spiritual journey. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. Uh, Stand with me, if you will, I'm gonna pray for us. As people are standing, uh, worship or uh, prayer team, would you guys come forward, be available, maybe over here and over here. And as we close in this song, if you're in the room or if you're watching online, but if you're in the room and you've never given your heart to this King Jesus, never surrendered your life, and you wanna pray with us, I'm gonna be right over here. One of us would love to pray with you and to lead you in that supernatural transaction. If you need special prayer, our prayer teams are all around here. Don't be afraid. They're kind, wonderful people that are in Jesus' journey just like you. 
Okay, I'm gonna pray and then let's worship. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us tools, tools that can be used for good or for ill. And fasting is one of them, it's a tool. And Father, I pray for the next 46 days as we embark upon Lent to prepare ourselves for Holy Week, for Good Friday when you die, for Holy Saturday, and for Easter Sunday when the resurrection power of King Jesus blasted into the world. Father, I pray that in this season of Lent that you would meet us. Father, would you transform us? Would you shape us? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would keep us from fasting in order to earn your pleasure in some religious mumbo jumbo, but rather we would be a people who would fast to humble ourselves before you, to know you better, to be known by you and to abide more fully in your person. Father, I pray that we could sing and worship here big, celebrating who you are. Father, would you meet with us in this closing song and in the week ahead. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. I'll close us in just a minute.
Spurgeon. Our seasons of fasting and prayer, in fact, I'm gonna put it in our context. I'm gonna say Saltbox. Our seasons of fasting and prayer at Saltbox have been high days indeed. Never has God's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer to the central glory of God. Father, I pray that we as a church would go from this place not revved up for religious performance, but hearts that are deeply surrendered to you, turned towards you. And Father, I pray that as we as a church embark upon a season of fasting, whatever that means in everyone's individual context, that you would meet with us powerfully, convicting us, showing us, hardening or, or softening rather hardened hearts, humbling us, speaking to us about your love for us, your identity, our identity in you. Father, I pray that this is a powerful season indeed. As we go today, would you cause your face to shine upon us? Would you allow us to be more aware of your person, your presence, your still small voice? Would you let us sense and know your love? And would you let us abide in you more fully? In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. We're so glad you've listened in with us here at Saltbox, and we'd love to get to know you better. So we hope you'll stay in touch and get more involved by joining us on the YouTube live stream. We hope you have a great week, and we encourage you to keep digging into your faith, because at the end of the day, it's just Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less.